Acts chapter 2, verse 40. And I want to talk to you today uh, kind of as, a, as the last Sunday of the old year and before we come into the new year, I want to talk to you about uh, back to basics. And I'm going to challenge you in some areas today, hopefully. Um, you know, <clears throat> the word challenge, when it's used by a pastor, uh, pastors like to challenge people, but people sitting out there don't always hear the word challenge the same way. When I say I want to challenge you, I mean I want to challenge you. I want to uh, uh, motivate you. I want to encourage you to reach beyond maybe what you normally would. Uh, sometimes when I say, when a pastor says he wants to challenge his people, what some people hear is the pastor's condemning me. And I'm not condemning you. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. But uh, this, this thought of being challenged is, is kind of a, a touchy thing because we live in a culture where people don't like to be challenged and it's become politically incorrect to challenge people. Um, to the point that, you know, we want to try to remove all the sharp edges off of everything. We want to remove all the things that could possibly bring harm or pain or discomfort. And I really personally think that's a dangerous thing because I don't see that in the Bible. I don't see God removing all the sharp edges. And I don't see God taking away all the danger. And I don't see God rewriting the scripture or masking things to make it appear as though there are never any failures and everybody always succeeds at everything and anything they want to succeed at. Uh, I think we do people a disservice when we paint that kind of a picture. If a child is led to believe that two plus two equals five, uh, I think it, we do them a disservice by not telling them they are wrong. And we're not going to damage them forever if we say to that child, that's wrong. You're wrong. Uh, we actually may not only not be damaging them, we may actually be helping them a whole lot. Because one day they're going to get out into the world, as we have all discovered, and the world's going to hit us in the face, and, and then we're going to be behind the learning curve. And I think God is a good parent. He's a good father. And he's a good father that tells us when we're wrong. And he tells us that not to condemn us. He tells us that because he loves us. And so uh, when I say I want to challenge you, I want to do this because I love you. And because I love the body of Christ. Because I love God. And my position as a pastor is one that necessitates that I must be willing to challenge those whom God has made me the shepherd over. Amen? But know this, I'm also shepherded by some... Christ is my shepherd just like he's your shepherd. So as I challenge you, it's because God has challenged me. So I'm not immune to the challenge. None of us are. So I want to talk about uh, some basics. Worship is basic. Worship encompasses who we are and what we do, when and how we respond to God and to one another and to life. Worship encompasses how you respond to God. It encompasses how you respond to one another. It encompasses how you respond to life. It defines where we are going or this word trajectory, it defines your trajectory. It defines ultimately where you're going to end up. Worship is basic. It's basic to, to our faith. And it encompasses much more than a couple of hours on a Sunday morning. But I don't say that to minimize the couple of hours on Sunday morning that we come together because there is no part of our worship that is more important than this part. 
That doesn't mean the other parts are, are less important. What I'm saying is this is not less important than any other aspect of your worship. This is just as, and I believe in some ways, more important than some aspects. But we will not understand that if we don't understand what this is all about. And we won't understand what this is all about if we don't understand worship. So I want to talk about some basics. Uh, what is basic to our worship? And I, I, I chose Acts chapter 2, verse 40 to the end of the chapter. I'm going to read that. Let's read this together. Uh, follow along as I read. And let's talk about some things that are very basic here. Now, Acts chapter 2, the context of this is, this is right after the birth of the church. Acts chapter 2 is taking place right on the heels of the day of Pentecost. What was the day of Pentecost? Pentecost was one of the seven original feasts that God gave to Israel. And, uh, and Pentecost was the day, it was the feast that, that originally, it was the feast that commemorated the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. All these feasts were connected to a cycle of, of nature. They were all connected to the cycle of the harvest, of planting, of seed time and harvest. And um, uh, Jesus was resurrected on first fruits. First fruits was uh, connected to the barley harvest. Why the barley harvest? Because the barley was the grain that was harvested first. Pentecost was, was, was connected to the wheat harvest because it was the harvest that came after, 50 days after. So the barley was ready first, then the wheat. But, but it all is connected spiritually. And, and, and Pentecost originally commemorated that time when Israel stood at the base of Mount Sinai and God was up on the mountain with thundering and lightning and they were literally scared for their lives. And God asked all Israel... He gave them his word. He gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. He gave them the covenant. He said, do you receive my word? And Israel said, yes, Lord, we do. Well, that was symbolic of something that was coming later because who is the word? Christ is the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. So the, the word on Mount Sinai spoke of the word that would come. We just celebrated the coming of the Word. We celebrated Advent. We call it Christmas. It's the coming of Jesus. That is the coming of the Word. That is the, the, the Word made flesh and dwelt among us. That's what, that's what Pentecost, that's what Sinai was about. And so then on Pentecost, following the resurrection of Jesus, it's when God poured out His Spirit on all flesh. What does that mean? Every single human being on planet earth? No, that's not what that means. All flesh means that God poured out his spirit on prophets, on priests, on kings. But he didn't stop there. He poured it out on little maid servants, And he poured it out on men servants, And he poured it out on bond slaves. And he poured it out on free men. And he poured it out on rich men. And he poured it out on poor men. And he poured it out on Jews. And he poured it out on Gentiles. He poured it out on all flesh. So we represent today all flesh. You have, if you are in Christ, you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. You didn't receive that gift conditioned upon who you are and what your lineage is and what your social status is and what your calling is. You receive that gift because of who Christ is. So Pentecost, God poured out His Spirit and the church was birthed, the New Testament church. Do you know there was a church in the Old Testament? The Old Testament church was Israel. The New Testament church includes Israel, but it includes much more than Israel. It includes not just Jew, but it includes Gentile now. So the, the New Testament church didn't replace Israel. The Old Testament church didn't cease to exist. It still exists. But now God has brought, and he's, he's brought the fullness of his church to be. The plan of salvation was never just for the Jews. It was always for all flesh. That's why... The prophecy that God would pour out all flesh, guess where that began? It didn't begin in the book of Acts in the New Testament. 
That's the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. Prophet to the Jewish nation. Prophesying there would come a day when God would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. Not just Jews, but also on Gentiles. Not just priests and kings and, and prophets, but on, on the lowest of the low. Regardless of what tribe, or whether they even had a tribe. This is the church. This is who we are. We are the church. And so on Pentecost, here in the book of Acts, this is the pouring out of the Spirit, the birth of the church. And so now the church has been birthed. And Peter is preaching this sermon. I mean, we're, we're just, we're literally minutes, hours on the other side of the pouring out of the Spirit in the upper room. They've come down. Peter's preaching this sermon. In, in verse 40, <clears throat> as he concludes, it says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Now this is Luke writing a history of the church. Luke is the author of Acts. And Luke is recording what happened on the day of Pentecost when Peter came down from the upper room and preached a sermon. And, he, and Luke writes, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, this is what Peter said, be saved from this perverse generation. Verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day... On the day of Pentecost, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is the beginning of the church. The beginning of the New Testament church. And this, these short few verses give us a window. They give us a picture of how the church began. And we should take notice of how the church began. Because how the church began determines... <coughs> Where the church is going to end. And the trajectory we are on. So right here, God sets the trajectory of the church. The question is, are we on the same trajectory today as the church was in the beginning? It's an important question. If you are going to get on a flight tomorrow morning, and you are going to fly to Japan... Or let's say that we're in Indonesia and we're going to get, a, get on a flight and we're going to fly to Beijing. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? And somehow the trajectory of your flight from Indonesia to Beijing got out of whack. And instead of flying to Beijing, you're, you're flying in the opposite direction out into the middle of the Indian Ocean down by Antarctica. You know, you've got a problem with your trajectory. Your trajectory is not taking you in a very good place. So when we get on an airplane, we trust, we hope, and we pray. Some people sweat over whether the trajectory of this plane is set right. Now, if we're flying from Austin to Dallas, eh, trajectory's off a little bit. It might not be any big deal. But if we're flying around the world and we're trying to hit a very little spot in the middle of the ocean, our trajectory is very important that it's dead on. So in these scriptures here that I just read to you, there are some things basic to our worship. And I want to just touch on those. I don't want to really expound on them. I just want to touch on them kind of in a big picture way here today. Basic to our worship is the gospel. 
Look at verse 40. With many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. The preaching, the teaching, and the living of the gospel is basic to our worship. The gospel is not just something I talk to you about week in and week out. The gospel must be what you live and what you witness through your life day in and day out. You are called not just to hear the gospel. You are called to be a living epistle that communicates the gospel in every way. In every way imaginable. From how you handle disappointment. If you're a real competitive person and you just lost that competitive game you were playing, how you handle that loss is going to be determined by the gospel. If you're a parent and your kid just got on your last nerve the tenth time, how you handle what you're going to do with your child is going to be determined by the gospel. Or it should be determined by the gospel. The gospel is not just a topic you hear talked about in church. The gospel must become the thing that permeates our life, the thing that comes out of our life, the thing that defines our life, the thing that helps us to live our life. The gospel is basic to our worship. You notice that in verse 41, verse 40, Paul, Peter's admonition was, be saved from this perverse generation. In verse 41, the response to the gospel was, those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Basic to our worship, along with the gospel, is repentance and salvation. Salvation is something that you enter into one time. You only get saved once. But yet, out of that one-time experience of salvation, you continue being saved. It, the way we can understand this is the birth of a child. A baby's only born once, but just because he's born once doesn't mean he doesn't continue to grow and to mature. So we're only saved once. You don't get saved, lose your salvation, get saved again any more than a child gets born. And, and when they mess up bad enough, we don't put the child back in the mother's womb and say, okay, try that again. No, that's not how it happens. Aren't you mothers thankful? That's not how it happens. Now, the child is born once. You're saved once. But, but in your salvation, you are growing continually. You're growing through your failures. You're growing through your success. You're growing through everything imaginable. The pain, the joy, the tears, the laughter. You're growing through all of it. So you're saved. You're being saved. And you ultimately one day will be saved. One day this corruption will put on incorruption. We're not going to live forever in these limited bodies. Aren't you thankful for that? Some of you are more thankful than others because some of you have not come to, to realize the full effect of the limitation that this flesh puts on you because you're still young and spry and limber and, and you don't have soreness and you don't have those limitations and you don't even know what I'm talking about. But some of you who have lived long enough know exactly what I'm talking about and you're actually looking forward to the day when you won't have to deal with this thing anymore. That's what it means when I say you are saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. But the only way and the only reason you are being saved and the only reason you will be saved is because you have already been saved. The only reason the child is going to grow up and become a mature human being is because the child was born. You, you, you tracking with me? So repentance and salvation is absolutely essential and basic in our worship. It's our response to the gospel. And then look at verse 42. And they, so, so Luke writes, and he tells us what, what happened on that day of Pentecost when Peter preached this sermon. The gospel was presented. The gospel was presented in word and deed to those people in Jerusalem. And they, those that gladly received it were baptized and they were saved. We have the gospel presented. We have repentance and salvation. Now, in verse 42, he says, And they continued, and they continued steadfastly. In what? In the apostles' doctrine. Doctrine is a dirty word today. It's 
Some churches take pride in the fact that they don't do doctrine. That, can I just... Can I just say this? That is, I'm not going to say what I was going to say. The part of the word that I was going to say is in the Bible. It taught. So I'm not going to say how a nine that is. I'll just say how foolish that is. How foolish, how absolutely foolish to say we don't do doctrine. Do you know what doctrine means? It means instruction. That's like saying, well, we don't do instruction. That's like having a child and saying, well, you just go live your life however you want. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Only the most foolish parent would do that. No, doctrine is absolutely essential. And why, how did the church begin? And what was the trajectory they were set on? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That, my friends, is what we call discipleship. Or more specifically, that's what we call the doctrine of Christ. They continued steadfastly in the doctrine of Christ because the doctrine of the apostles is the doctrine of Christ. Where did that doctrine come from? It came from the Scripture. It came from the Old Testament Scripture. It came from the inspired Word of God. It came from the inspiration that has become our New Testament. This is our doctrine today. The Bible is our doctrine. The doctrine of Christ is our doctrine. That is our instruction it's absolutely basic to our worship. They continued steadfastly, not only in the apostles' doctrine, but in fellowship. That means they fellowship with the apostles and also with one another. It's very difficult to be instructed by someone if you have no fellowship with somebody. The apostles didn't just hand them a book and say, here, now go study that for the rest of your life and you're good to go. See you later. Now, they, there was a relationship there. You and I have a relationship right now on Sunday morning. We have the, for some of you, the only relationship I have with you is on Sunday morning. And, and that's fine. We have different levels. But, but, but understand this. This is why we present multiple opportunities. This is why we have a Bible study on Sunday morning. We have a Bible study on Wednesday night. We've got a... Thursday morning Bible study at the coffee shop. We try to make it as diverse as possible so that, if, you know, if you don't want to come in here, you go next door. If you don't go next door, then meet me at the coffee shop. Or if that doesn't work, let's find another time. But this is important. This is about our growth. Parents, you spend time with your children to help them grow up properly. This is our problem in our culture today. There's not enough parents spending enough time with their children to help them grow up properly. Just spend a day in our public schools and you'll understand what I'm talking about. Talk to a teacher. They'll inform you. Fellowship. It's participation. That's that word koinonia. It means participation. It's participation in the body. Which is what? It's the fellowship of Christ. Our, we're called Christ Fellowship on purpose. Clifford Staten named this church Christ Fellowship based on a scripture, I believe, in 1 John. Let me just find it for you while I have this on my mind. Because this isn't just fellowship in the sense that we are going to get together and have a potluck and that's fellowship but fellowship koinonia is so much more than that it's participation in the body basic to our worship is your participation in the body it's first john chapter 1 verse 3 that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This is why we're called Christ Fellowship. Because ultimately, if our fellowship is not in Christ, if it's not the fellowship of Christ, then our fellowship is pointless. It really is. Now that's not to say... When we get together to watch the Super Bowl. Let's use the Super Bowl because we usually have a fellowship on Super Bowl Sunday night. And we all get together and watch the Super Bowl. Is there anything spiritual about the Super Bowl? Absolutely not. 
really and truly it's not. I don't know. Maybe you can try to find some spiritual application there. But, but, but that's not why we get together and watch the Super Bowl. We just get together because it's an opportunity for us to get together. And, you know, maybe play flag football, maybe hurt the pastor. I don't know, you know. It, it, that's happened too. Actually, I hurt myself. I can't blame that on anyone but myself. Uh, so it's just fun. It's, it's, that's part of fellowship. But when we strip the Super Bowl and all the games and all the fun, we, we strip that away, we go back to this core basic principle that our fellowship really it's in Christ. Christ is the reason for everything because in him all things consist. So fellowship, our participation in the body is absolutely basic to worship. Breaking bread. They continued in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread. This is our communion with the body of Christ at the table of Christ. We have the doctrine of Christ. We have the fellowship of Christ. We have the table of Christ. We have a table. There's a reason why communion is on a table. It's called the table of the Lord. It's the table of Christ. Now, there's nothing magical about the table. There's nothing magical about those containers. There's nothing magical about the wafer and the cup. But there is something powerful. And if you want to say magical or mystical about communion, I'm okay with that. <laughs> We don't believe that the wafer actually becomes Jesus and the cup actually becomes his blood. But we do believe that it's not just an empty symbol either. There is something very powerful. I'll even use the word mystical about coming to the table of the Lord. Because we are communicating, we are remembering, we're doing something real and powerful. There is a true and real renewal of the covenant that takes place. Every time we come to this table, we are affirming the covenant. It's why it's so important. It's why if we didn't do anything else on a Sunday morning, we would have communion. It's that important. The breaking of bread. And any time we break bread, I'm just going to say this. When we have a fellowship, when we have Super Bowl Sunday, when we all bring our snacks, listen, we're breaking bread together. We're not coming to the table of the Lord in the same sense that we come here, but we are fellowshipping as the body, and we are breaking bread as the body the same way that we do here. We're celebrating our unity in Christ, whether it's around a Super Bowl or whether it's around this table. Again, we go back to this core principle that our fellowship is in Christ. It's with Christ. It's in Christ. So we come to the table of the Lord. It's basic to our worship. And they continued steadfastly in prayers. The doctrine of Christ, the fellowship of Christ, the table of Christ, the intercession of Christ. We come to the Father in the name of the Son. Because there is a mediator between God and man. There is someone who made intercession for us. There is someone who makes intercession for us. There is someone who has prepared a way for us. His name is Jesus. This is why we don't pray to saints. We don't pray to Mary. I mean, half my family's Catholic. <clears throat> Some of them have left the Catholic Church. And one of my nieces said, you know, I'm still having a hard time because I just get such comfort in praying to Mary. But I know scripturally there's no reason for me to pray to Mary. It's just something that I, you know, I've done it for so long and it brings me comfort. Listen, we find our comfort in that Jesus Christ has become our mediator. Jesus Christ is the man that has brought us into the presence of the Father. Jesus Christ has brought us boldly with confidence to the very throne of grace. Why did they continue steadfastly in prayers? Because now there was... There was a way made. They didn't have to bring an animal to be sacrificed any longer. They didn't have to come to the priest with an animal and say, Priest, will you give my prayer to the Lord for me because I can't come. No, our high priest has come. His name is Jesus. And the Bible in Revelation tells us that we are now kings and priests to our God. We bring our prayers directly to God now. That's amazing, church. It might not be amazing to you, but I'm telling you what, it is truly truly amazing that we can now come ourselves to the very throne of grace. It's basic to our worship. 
the intercession of Christ. And then verse 43 says, Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. We don't like fear either. But the fear of the Lord is a manifestation of the Spirit of God. And we better all hope that we have found the fear of the Lord because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. If you have no fear of God, if you have no fear of the Lord, then why, why would you even bother to want to be saved by Him? Why would you even feel there's a need to be saved? What are you fearful of? People that fly on airplanes are often fearful. What are they fearful of? They're fearful that the airplane is going to fall out of the sky and crash and they're going to die. So why does that cause fear? Why, why? It's easy to understand I need to be saved from a falling airplane. It's another thing to, to understand that I need to be saved because I'm a sinner. Because it seems like, yeah, I'll just never get in an airplane. I'll never drive in a car. I'll just live a safe life. I don't have any re reason to fear. No. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It says fear came upon them. We see fear. We see fruit here. The fruit of the Spirit is the manifestation of His life and His love in us. We see fruit as we read this account. We see the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of these believers and how they interacted with one another. And we also see wonders, wonders and signs, both great and small, of God's power and God's grace. Whether it's blind eyes being opened, a lame man being healed and walking or the greatest miracle that we cannot see outwardly take place, which is the salvation of our souls, the rebirth of our spirits, the recreation of our spirits, conformed to the very Spirit of God, raised from death to life, from darkness to light. You once were darkness, now you're light in the Lord. There's no greater miracle. This is a sign and a wonder. This is a manifestation of God's Spirit. We have this in the church. This is basic. We should come here every week and we should expect the manifestation of God's Spirit. We should expect as we walk on planet Earth, whether it's in our jobs or in the grocery store, whoever we're encountering at any given time, we should expect for God's Spirit to manifest, that God could work through a vessel like you or like me to bring about the manifestation of His Spirit, whether it's salvation or healing, whatever it is. Small or great, seen or unseen, do you realize miracles are all around you? Life is a miracle. Just life in and of itself is a miracle. Walk outside today and look at a tree. It's a miracle. Look at the sky. It's a miracle. Unless God opens your eyes to that reality, you'll miss it. You'll sleepwalk right through it until God opens your eyes to that reality. There's a lot of people that sleepwalk through life. Just totally and completely not getting anything. Life is just about them. Life is just about the moment. They're just sleepwalking through life and they're blind and they're deaf to the reality, to the wonder of God. Verse 44, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, sold their possessions, their goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. They were all together and had all things in common. Unity. <coughs> Unity is basic to worship. They sold their possessions and they gave to one another. There was sacrificial giving. Now, this is not advocating communism. It doesn't mean you need to go out and sell all your possessions, but it does mean this. That we as believers need to be willing to give sacrificially. In, in any way you want to define it. In any and every way you want to define it. Does that mean your money? Yes. Does that mean your time? Yes. Does that mean your sweat and your effort? Yes, it does. Now here's what's become the norm in the church growth industry in America today. Make church as convenient as easy as possible so that you minimize the amount of excuses people have as to why they're not going to come. Make it as convenient, as easy, 
No, don't challenge the people. If you challenge them, they're not going to come back. Well, you don't challenge them. Here's the, here's the conventional thinking. You don't challenge them. You attract them with all these you know, things, draw them in, and then pray really hard that when you get them there, God will do something inside of them, and then you challenge them later on, not publicly, but privately. See, the big public gathering, you don't challenge people because that drives people away. You wait until you got them, and when you got them, then you challenge them privately, you know, once you know the Spirit of God's really got them there. Then, they, then they'll receive the challenge okay. The only problem I have with that is, do you see Jesus operating that way in the Bible? I don't. Can you imagine? Now, we can't imagine today. But in John chapter 6, if we would take ourselves and put ourselves back in that setting of that day... And Jesus stands up in front of thousands of people and he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me in my kingdom. Now, you, I say that today and you understand, well, we understand what Jesus meant. But understand this, when Jesus spoke that to those thousands of people, they didn't understand what he meant. They thought he really wanted them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And that really was a sin, and that really was an abomination to God. And the Bible says, from that day forward, many followed him no more. He didn't say, look, today we've got this really delicious bread and this really delicious drink. We want all of you to come and eat and drink of it. And then after they all eat and drink of it, and he finds the most committed ones, he says, now let me tell you something, guys. What you just did was eat my flesh and drink my blood. But let me explain it to you. No, he didn't do that. He just told them straight out. And they left in droves. Now, I'm not advocating that we try to drive people away. But here's what I am saying. If we're not willing to challenge people with the truth and teach people the very basics of our worship, and if we're so concerned that that we're going to offend people with the very basics of our worship, we got a problem. And the problem is not something I can fix or you can fix. The problem is something only God can fix. And if we don't tell people the truth, if they don't hear the truth, how are they going to ever know the truth? Sacrificial giving. That means your tithe. Your tithe belongs to God. You should pay your tithe to the church. You should give offerings above your tithe to the church. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. Listen, I had to deal with that too. Uh, And I know it's not an easy thing to deal with. But the bottom line is, this this isn't an extracurricular. Man, this is basic. It's basic to our worship. I mean, these guys, this is why I always tell people, the the New Testament standard is set so much higher. These people really went out and sold. It'd be like me going out and selling my house and my property and bringing the money. God doesn't ask us to do that. These people did it. But that's what I mean. The standard was not lowered in the New Testament. The standard was raised in the New Testament. And the question is, Are you willing to give everything to God if God required that? That's a question all of us have to answer. Because that's the question that the scripture is asking us. Singleness of purpose. Verse verse 46. They continued. There's that word again. So continuing. They're still continuing. Continuing daily. With one accord, daily, not not just weekly, not just monthly, but daily. With one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. (coughs) Singleness of purpose is basic to our worship. Joyful and simple hearts, simplicity. We don't need to complicate things more than they need to be. We need to find joy in the simplicity of Christ, of the gospel. 
that needs to be in our hearts. And then it says in the very last of that verse, verse 47, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It's continuous worship and continuous witness. And the result of that continuous worship and continuous witness was increase. Ultimately, it's God that brings the increase in every way. This is 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7. Paul says, some water, some plant, God brings the increase. But that does not mean that we do not do our part and that we do not fulfill our responsibility. I always tell you, God is your provider, not the person that signs your check. But somebody does sign your check, right? Now, I, I, oftentimes I take Marva to work at Walmart. Marva works at Walmart. You probably all know that. If you've ever been to Walmart, surely you've seen Marva. That would be kind of ridiculous for Marva to expect for Walmart to keep signing her check if she just decided she was going to stay home. Marva has to do her responsibility, right? I do my responsibility, right? You do your, whoever signed your paycheck, you show up and they sign your paycheck. But God, God is your provider. But that doesn't free you. Try going to your employee saying, hey, I found out today in church that God is my provider. So I, I want you just, and my pastor says that doesn't matter who signs your check, God's your provider. So I want you to keep signing my check, but I'm going to just, you know, I'll, I'll come when I feel like it. Does it work that way? It doesn't really work that way, does it? So God brings the increase, yes. But that doesn't release us from our responsibility. We're trusting for God to bring increase to the church in every way. But that doesn't relieve you or me of our responsibility of these very basic and fundamental things that should and must define our lives. So I want you to faithfully commit to worship. I want you to faithfully commit to be here. I want you to faithfully commit to be here early. I want you to faithfully commit to be here for God. I want you to faithfully commit to be here for one another. I challenge you to faithfully commit to be here as a witness, as a witness to others. One of the greatest unspoken, silent witnesses that you can make to the world around you is to get up on Sunday morning and come to church. They may never say to you, where are you going? They may never ask you that. They may never, but the fact that they know that you faithfully commit to worship God with the brethren. I thought of three words as we were singing this morning. Purpose, preparation, and perseverance. Purpose, preparation, and perseverance. This is what our worship requires. This is what our walk requires. This is what our witness requires. Purpose, preparation, and perseverance. Now Lou was telling me just before we started the service today about Comcan. Ikikon. Huh? Ikikon. Ikikon Kong You guys know what that is? That's where uh, all the people dress up like Star Trek characters or Marvel characters, and, and they go to this convention. You go there, and you will see people that have tattooed themselves, that have stained their skin, have had corrective surgeries to make themselves look like certain characters that you'll see in a movie. Uh, and, and Lou made the comment. She said it's almost like it's become their religion. And, and that's exactly what it's become. That's what they worship. Whether they would define it that way, whether they realize it that way, that is the object of their worship. Now you think about the purpose, the preparation, and the perseverance it takes to do something like that. People do it all the time for worldly reasons. We do it all the time for worldly reasons. But when it comes to the things of God, now get, you might pull your toes back, I'm fixing to step on them, okay? When it comes to the things of God, we think, we think the things that matter to us in the world don't really matter to God. You know why they would ring bells? You know why churches had bell towers and bells? You know what the ringing of the bell would indicate? 
worship is beginning. And if you weren't there, it was your sign to say, hey, if you're outside, it's your, your sign that says, I need to get inside. It's the call to worship. Let me ask you this question. Keep your toes on your seat, okay? You don't want to step on it. Would you, would you have the same level of commitment to your employer, to your school, pick your whatever, as you would to God? Do you think God requires less? Do you think God's like, uh, doesn't really matter to God? It's just church. It's just God. He's full of grace and mercy. Yes, he is. Thank God. God's not going to keep us out of heaven because we're late to church, okay? God's not going to keep us out of heaven because uh, we haven't calculated our tithe just correctly. God's not going to keep us out of heaven because we, we fail. That's not what I'm saying. I'm asking you, though, to examine your worship. I'm asking you to look at your commitment how does your life communicate in every way your commitment and your worship to God? Are you more committed to other things of this world than you are to God? Do you find that you can get places and do things and sacrifice and persevere in for things and in things, but when it comes to God, it's, it's just too easy to write him off and say, well, it doesn't really matter. I told you I wanted to challenge you today. Because here's what I came to realize. Do you know why we're here today in this room? Now think about it. Jesus died in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. The church was birthed in Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. There was not a Taylor, Texas. There was not a Texas. There was not a United States of America. I... They probably knew we were, this continent was here. You know, there was somebody was here. I don't, I don't know whether they did or not. But, but here, here's the reality. Some 2,000 years later, here we are, sitting in Little Taylor, Texas, in this little church building, talking about a Jesus that was crucified 2,000 years ago, reading a Bible that has been passed down to us over the millenniums. You know how old this book is? You ever gone to a garage sale and found a really old book and said, oh, look at this book. Look how old it is. You open up the copyright page and it's copyrighted in, in, in 1862. Wow. Look how old this book is. Look. I'm holding in my hand a written record of the very beginning of the creation. A written record of the one who existed before the creation. You want to talk about old. He's ageless. How do you think this book came to us? Do you think men and women of God just said, oh, well, you know, it doesn't really matter? No, I don't think they do. How has the church made it since the creation? Let's just forget the creation. Let's just go back to Pentecost 2,000 years ago. How in the world has the church sustained and, and, and carried on that we've come to this place today in Taylor, Texas. Do you think it happened because those believers said, well, you know, it doesn't really matter whether we get together or not. It doesn't matter whether we have church or not. God still loves me. I'll just go out here to the tree and say a prayer. Besides, those people get on my nerves anyways. I'm better off without them. No, that's not how it happened. Now, I want to also draw your attention to this reality. You're not going to come to that place just in and of yourself. It is a work of grace. There's no doubt about it. By the grace of God, God has preserved His church. By the grace of God, God preserved the Scriptures for us. By the grace of God, we have what we have today. But God did not do that by His grace apart from men and women sacrificing and choosing and being committed to the very basic things that define our worship. 
for whatever crazy reason God has chosen to work through all of us with our faults, with our failures, with our frailty, with our quirkiness. He's just chosen to do that. And thank God he has. It's by his grace, but it's not apart from your responsibility. Now I'm through being mean to you, okay? Before we get ready to close, I want to tell you about some things that, just real quickly, uh, starting next week, we're going we're gonna to do some different things. One of the things that we're going to do next year, and it's going to be a year-long thing. Listen, I didn't grow up in church. The only, the only time I ever heard the word catechism growing up was when, uh, because half my family was Catholic. And I'd hear them talk about catechism and confirmation. I had, did not have a clue what it meant. Okay? But next year, we're going to do something uh, that we've never done, ever, ever done at Christ Fellowship Church before. We're going to actually take the church through a catechism. It's called the New City Catechism. It's primarily written by Tim Keller. Uh, if you've never read any of Tim Keller stuff, it's a great pastor, great author. He has a church in Manhattan. He, he went from somewhere on the eastern seaboard, I think Virginia, he planted a church in downtown Manhattan. And God has just done phenomenal things in one of the one of the most challenging areas you can imagine. And this is a pastor who does not compromise the word of God. He's not a liberal, he's a conservative, and he does not compromise the gospel. But yet God has honored that, and he's right there in the midst of people, I mean, Jewish population, atheistic population, people who worship money as their God. He's right there by Wall Street, and, and he's done an amazing thing. I love Tim Keller's work. And Tim Keller wrote a catechism called the New City Catechism. It's 52 questions for 52 weeks of the year. And the reason, here's our purpose for doing this. To, it's, it's for the purpose that we would grow together from diversity. We all come from diverse groups here. I don't come from any faith background. Some of you might come from Catholic, Lutheran, Baptist. I don't know where all you come from. We come from diversity. We want to grow into a united understanding of our faith in God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is going to be real simple. We're not going to belabor this. So as part of our service each week, there's, a, there's one catechism question. I'll, t I'll give you what question one is. And, and uh, we'll, we'll give you all the resources next week and, and everything. Uh, I'll give you, you, you can just Google New City Catechism and it's right there free. Uh, and you can download the PDF. You can do it online. Uh, there's other resources there to go with it, other readings. You can make it as deep as you want or you can just do the question. But question one uh, for the first week is this. Here's the question. What is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is this, that we are not our own but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. They're just short questions and short answers. And actually in that answer, uh, you'll see when you go to the website, there's a, there's a children's answer. The children's answer, you ask your, your child, what is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong to God. Now, some of you adults, maybe you just want to memorize the children's answer. That's fine. But what this will do, it will focus us all. And in 52 weeks, whether you realize it or not, uh, we'll go through the very foundations and basics of the faith, and it will help us have a unified understanding of our faith, of God, and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And, you know, this is what you see in the, in the Hebrew Scriptures. God put repetition throughout the Scripture. He told Israel, why did he start feasts? Celebrate these feasts. You do it year after year after year after year. Why? Because he was building an understanding of their faith, of who this God is that they worship, that they've covenanted with. And we've, we've lost that in our modern church in many ways. And, and I know when I came to faith in Christ, I, I had a point of pride that said we are not traditional. We're not Catholic. We're not Lutheran. We're non-denominational. We don't have a tradition. Boy, was I wrong. 
our tradition of non-tradition really can be more damaging than it can be helpful in many ways. And the argument always was, well, we don't want a bunch of empty traditions. Well, but we want people to observe the tradition of coming to church every week, don't we? We want people to observe the tradition of reading their Bible as much as possible. We want people, there's lots of traditions we want people to observe and not, them not become dead, empty traditions. So we just really kind of pick and choose the ones that we don't want. But the reality is what we've done is throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so I want us for a year to go through this each week. It'll take about two minutes. We'll put the question up on the screen. Someone's going to come up and they're going to read the question and we're going to respond together. And that's it. Then what you guys do at home is up to you. If you want to watch the, read the readings and watch the video and go in more depth, that, that's totally up to you. But at least as part of our worship, we're going to all have an opportunity to grow together in a very basic understanding of our faith. And hopefully it will motivate you to read and to study and challenge you in some areas is what I'm hoping. Are you guys okay with that? And then, as Marley mentioned, there's a new video series that we're going to start on the 11th. Uh, it's a five-week series. It's called Desiring God. And this new series is about finding your complete satisfaction and joy in God. And if you can't come at 9 o'clock to Sunday school, I, I totally understand that. I would really encourage you, though, if you can make it for five weeks and just go through this video series. If you can't make it for five weeks to come to this, this is, I think, actually free online. Uh, but for us to come together and to uh, just set, begin the new year in this way, that we purpose that we're going to find our complete satisfaction and our complete joy in God. We need that. We need to be able to find that in God because we're not going to find it anywhere else. So that's an opportunity, and of course, always on Wednesday night. So I want you to take advantage of those opportunities. I want you to be challenged with these things that are very basic to our worship. I want you to be purposeful. I want you to be prepared, and I want you to be willing to persevere in these things for your worship, for your walk, and for your witness to Christ. Amen? Let's all stand. Thank you for your patience. I know I talked long today and, and went longer than normal. But it's just God giving you an opportunity to persevere. Father, I thank you for the body of Christ. I thank you for Christ Fellowship Church. I thank you for each person here. And I thank you, Lord, that you're a good father. <clears throat> that, Lord, you don't leave us to ourselves. That you love us enough to challenge us. You love us enough to give us boundaries. You love us enough to allow us to fail, Lord, when we are out there floundering on our own, trying to live life out of our own strength, out of our own wisdom, out of our own knowledge. I thank you that you love us enough, God, to rein us in, to discipline us, to challenge us, and to cause us to grow and mature. Lord, that's my prayer for the body of Christ. Not just Christ fellowship, but for, for all the body. That we would grow, that we would mature. It will mean that we will experience hardship. It does mean that we will have to persevere through painful and unpleasant and inconvenient things. But God, if we do it with a purpose in mind, if we purpose to worship and that our worship would be true, and that our worship would be spiritual, and that you would be that object of worship, that we would come to value you above all things, that we would come to find our greatest satisfaction and our greatest joy in you, God. If we have not come to that place, then, Lord, I pray whatever it takes, bring us to that place. Bring us to the place of finding in you our greatest satisfaction and joy. Bring your church to a place that she glorifies you in this earth, that Christ's fellowship would glorify you in this city 
and in this area that each individual member of this corporate body would purpose to go out and to be a witness day in and day out in small and in great ways trusting you Lord in all things Father we pray this for your glory and it's our privilege Lord to come in the precious name of Jesus and make this request and this petition before you today and all God's people said Amen. Amen. Give the Lord a good hand. God bless you.